Welcome back to another episode of the Field Guide Podcast. I'm your co-host, Nathan Drutz, local extension crops educator for Stearns, Benton, and Morrison Counties. And with me is my co-host, Claire Lacan from Steel and Rice Counties. How are you doing today, Claire? Doing well, Nathan, and yourself? Uh, not too bad. Well, we're back here with uh, Tim Little. So, Claire, he's in here in Rice County, so I'll let, go ahead and let you introduce him. Yes, thanks, Tim, again for joining us. We are located in the north side of Rice County on Tim and Tammy Little's farm. And in the last episode, we talked about a lot of Tim's practices and how he came to the point where he is doing reduced and no tillage and also using cover crops. So, Tim, if you want to, again, give us a little refresher on uh, what you're doing out here. So, um, I started uh, no-tilling in 2005 and added in the use of cover crops in 2013. In my career of farming, we've gone from the moldboard plow to the disc chisel to the uh, DMI ripper, and now I'm uh, trying to make no-till and cover crops work without any tillage at all. So, um, seeing some real benefits as, as far as keeping the soil in place. Well, the last time we were here, touched on some topics that you're looking looking at moving forward with. And, you know, given your track record of experience here, 41 years doing this, I'm just kind of curious if we could talk if we could talk a little bit about some of your ideas here, especially as it relates to, you know, you're talking about moving away from using or trying to move away from utilizing chemicals and moving more towards how do you control pests without utilizing chemicals. And you briefly touched on it in the last podcast. Can you tell us a little bit more about what your overarching goal is and, and how you're going to start approaching that? Well, my over, I guess my goal, part of my goal I think has is, is somewhat been met because I've seen such a difference in keeping the soil in place and that was that was huge to me in the beginning because I got taught by my dad early on we left when we were plowing hay fields we left sod waterways and uh, we did things a lot different back then just because they didn't have the tools you know they had the diversity and the cover crops and the manure they had they had it all they were cover croppers in my book way back then I think I looked on a a soil, soil survey, or uh, that my dad a plan that he they had put together the county had put together for him, and he had seven different species that he was planting back in uh, sixty the early sixties, you know, and I don't know in the grand scheme of things, you know, obviously things have changed. Kids have left the farms. Farms have gotten bigger, and in doing that. You've got more acres to cover, so you've got to have a system that works. I get all of that. That's why a lot of guys are are doing full-blown tillage. But at the same time, when you look at our soil health, it's it's not as healthy as it was back then. We've got a lot of erosion issues. But I just can't help but think that if we could get back to farming in a more natural way, and get our soil health back uh, is, is the is the first key, and you can physically see that in soil if you know what you're looking for. We've talked about that before, where where that soil that's 
doesn't have any life in it. It's all compacted and it snaps like a brick. But you, the color and the smell of the soil isn't even the same. I remember pulling a two-bottom plow. That's what I learned on a little Massey Ferguson 65 with a two-bottom plow. So you weren't very far from your work. It was right, right there behind you. But I remember the smells back then when you were plowing a hayfield. And, what, and if you go over to a fence line now and take a shovel full of dirt and then go out into one of your punkier, wetter areas where you've got, you know you've got compaction and dig that soil up and smell them and look and compare them side by side. And, and it's not the same. And so I, I guess my goal, my big goal, and, and I, maybe it won't happen, maybe it will, but I, I wonder if we won't have a, a little bit of a turnaround here and, and bring more. When you look at our livestock, I mean, it's all centrally located in these big feedlots, and we're all raising the corn and the soybeans over here, and the, and the pigs and the cows are all over here concentrated, and I wonder if we couldn't get back to... It seems like if you could get the cows back on the farm. If I was 15 years younger, to, to answer your question, I would be buying a, a herd of cows and running it out because I've got perfect grazing out here right now with corn stalks and 10-inch cereal rye. I mean, I can, I, that would be awesome. But at this point in my life, I'm, I don't think I'm going to go there. Maybe my grandkids will, but I, I, think, we can, I think we can do this different and, and, and keep the soil in place and, and grow healthier food and grow healthier crops and in doing that, grow healthier animals, I think. Does that make any sense? <laughs> to some degree. Yes. I mean, it, it definitely does. But, you know, the biggest thing there I guess I'm looking at is you, you mentioned moving away, barring what we can't change. What practices are you looking to introduce to help with this? You mentioned you have a water hemp issue, and how do you manage water hemp in this situation? How are you, what, what are you looking at to introduce into your system here to help you overcome some of those challenges? Well, I'm trying to find a and I think we learned a little bit this year. Of course, the weather's always different. Just when you think you get something figured out, then the weather throws you a curveball, you know. But we flew a little earlier this year, and I would like to believe we've got a, just a beautiful stand of cereal rye. And if I can manage that right in the spring and terminate it a little later and make it more of a cover, I, I've got to believe that's going to help with the water hemp issues. So some of that is, is learning how to get the right species of cover crops planted, the right, the right timing to try to get a better stand of cover crop in the spring. And it is a challenge up here in the North Country. Anybody that thinks they've got that all figured out, I'd like to <laughs> sit down and have a long conversation with them because I, I, I'm, I'd be all ears because it is... Uh, it's tricky to figure out to get it terminated at the right time to get that cover that you want, but at the same time not hurt your crop that you're trying to grow. There's a fine line there. And so I guess the answer to your question is to, I really don't have any real set. The one thing possibly, I don't know that I want to go to a strip-till machine but I might go to something 
that would make some sort of a little strip to help get that soil dried out to get the crop, the corn crop started a little better. I don't know, maybe I can learn to, I've been, I've been making the no-till work and maybe I can just stick with that, be patient and make that work. Number one thing with no-tilling is, uh, I think most of them will tell you, you gotta have patience and that's one thing I'm a little lack of, but if you have, if you, if you can wait, and, you can make it work, I think, but I'm not doing a very good job of answering your question. No, no, I'd say your patience has paid off in some ways because we've discussed this before, but you have seen some changes in your organic matter in your no-till fields. So tell us about the patience that you've had to practice to see those changes. Well, a lot of it is just I, th I think it's from the reduced tillage. Well, it, obviously the cover crops have been huge too, but I think we do so much damage with tillage. Um, so I'm on a four-year cycle of, of, I do soil tests every four years in two and a half acre grids. And now in a year, next fall, I'll, I'll have some better data, but it looks to me so far like my organic matter has increased about three-tenths of a percent. And I don't know, some guys would say maybe that that's, doesn't sound like a lot, but I think that's a hard needle to move. So for me, it's exciting just to see that it's going up, you know. And, and again, you can see it. When you, when you take a shovel full of dirt and just look at, at that shovel full of dirt, it, it looks so much different than it used to. To me, I, I just, I, and I know the water, our water infiltration is, is much better, so, um, yeah. Yep, but you didn't see those leaps in organic matter in a year, right? We're talking about you're testing every four years. Right. So how long did it take to even see a change, do you think, ballpark? Probably that four, about four years. Yeah. You did see. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think that would be an accurate number. And to revisit, you know, some of your goals about in uh, reducing your chemical inputs, I'd say one thing I appreciate about you is that you are really experimenting and trying things all the time. And so you have done some work uh, trying different traded crops, right? For as far as your insect pests go, and you're looking at ways that you can be preventative or, uh, you know, stay ahead of having to use insecticides later on. Right. So I've gone, I used to plant triple stack and I've gone the last four years, I've planted double stack and I haven't had any issues at all. Um, soybeans, I've gone and I don't, it's about four or five years in a row now, I haven't treated the seed. And maybe I'm giving up a little bit of yield there, but again, I don't know. I I've, I haul grain for a living, so I know what I see what the yields are. I know what the other guys are doing, uh, and I'm I'm so close that I don't know that it's that big of a difference. And that means you're not having it treated with an insecticide that's a usually a neonicotinoid insecticide and no fungicide either. No, I haven't been using any fungicide on the corn or the beans. Right. I'm trying to do it in a more healthier manner. My biggest 
fallback as I'm still using glyphosate to terminate. That's why I'm still using the traits because I can go in with glyphosate. And, and I think we've got to watch that too. We try to change, change up our, uh, our cover crop a little bit too because you start doing the same thing over and over again. And we've learned that over the years. That's how you build up resistance, you know? So we're, yep. that's a concern too, you know? You want to keep those tools in your toolbox because you're using a lot of different mechanisms and a lot of different angles in your pest management strategy, and you just want to keep your options open. Yeah, I've got you to come out and check when I, when I see a problem. <laughs> you can tell me what's going on. but um, Right. I'll come look at the insects. Nathan can come look at the weeds, or I'll send him pictures of the weeds. <laughs> I say this took a very interesting turn. We just went from talking about cover crops to integrated pest management. Now I feel at home. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. This, yeah. Is, this is feeling more comfortable now suddenly. I mean, and that's interesting that you went from triple to double, and, and you know, you've got some conventional corn out there. One of the things that we noted, and we actually talked a little bit about this, but you know, just, just to have you reiterate that, what did your corn rootworm issues look like this last year? Did you have any? They came in late, so they didn't damage anything. We, but I am thinking about going back to the triple stack because the, the, the numbers were definitely up. And so I think that's something that you've got to keep an eye on and you've got to, to me, it's, and again, I, I, I'm no expert and I don't know, but it seems to me it'd be way environmentally more friendly to use a traded corn than it would become it to come in and spray something if you had a problem, you know? And the chances, if you have a problem, to come in and spray, you're gonna to be too late. So I've got a good agronomist that I work with and, and this is a conversation that comes up quite often. And, and normally he's on board with me up. I think you're fine with your, with your double stack. I think this is fine. And, and this year it was kind of a red flag. It's like, I don't know, we've seen a lot of numbers, a lot of beetle numbers, and he's just, he's just kind of wondering if we shouldn't be taking a look at the, at the yeah. trades and, again. And something I thought was interesting, and maybe this is probably a question I should direct at Claire here, is that, you know, but you, you mentioned, A, that it came back late. They came in late. And I'm kind of wondering, because we worked on that predator sampling, do you think that maybe the interaction between the cover crops and our insect communities is changing this to where part of the reason why we didn't see those numbers earlier in the season, despite you guys were drier early in the season, season uh, when we would expect those numbers to be a little bit higher, do you think maybe there's an inter interaction there? Ooh, that is a good question. It's hard to say in this, you know, exact situation. There's definitely growing degree days and everything like that. Environmental factors have got to be a part of it too, I'd say. But along those lines, we definitely do see some potential anyway, don't we, Nathan, for our predator insects to help set back some of our soil pest insects, like some of our lepidopteran pests, like some of our beetle pests. Um, and I guess, I don't know how much we want to go into this study, but Nathan and I have been part of a kind of preliminary study looking at insect predators feeding on other insects that are typically pests. And we are seeing some promising things happening 
with fields that have cover crops, particularly during a corn year, right? When the, when the crop is in the corn phase of the rotation. So before we continue, lepidopteran. I know what it means. Okay. Yep. Moth pests. There you go. Okay. All right. Yes. Yeah, it's Sorry, a specific family. No, and, and that's I do this because I know I get into the weed side of things and I start saying stuff and, and I know, it's I'm the like, same thing. Yeah. I, I thought of that when I said it. I'm like, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, it's something that I think is really interesting because we we're using wax worms as our bait. And you know, the the stage of the corn rootworm that we're concerned about is the actual larval stage. And so do you think, you know, especially who's been talking about in the last podcast earthworm count is up you know we were taught we were out standing outside you were talking about you know when you were putting in new tile lines you got more earthworms out there that look like small snakes do you think maybe that's also having an impact because these things are coming in from the soil or you know are we seeing maybe uh, not just the earthworms but you know those sorts of predators in the in the soil that we're not even accounting for in this case yes i think the potential for the diversity of the soil food web is very high in a diverse and cover cropped system. So, you know, we're talking about predation. That is one interaction that can help set pests back. But there's competition, you know, like if there's an insect that's beneficial that's living in the soil, that can help, can compete for resources with an insect that could become a pest later on. And predation, competition, parasitism, all of these are interactions that are going on really in our soils. And we do sometimes tend to simplify things. I think when we're looking at one aspect of it, we're trying to define here are beneficial insects. That means they are natural enemies. That's not the only thing that's going on in the soil. And so I guess to your point, Nathan, is yeah, I think there are a lot of things that we don't see in the soil and that we don't understand in the soil that are encouraged by crop diversity. I think back when I was in ag school and I and I I just kind of shake my head because in science class, you know, would look at all the information we had about the stars and studying up. Yeah. We should have been taking more time and studying what's under our feet. You know, I, I I think we're a little bit behind the eight ball, and and it, I mean we're making some real headway now. Obviously, we're all digging into this, but uh, it's so interesting because I think to your point, I think it's help it helps control aphids, does it? Doesn't it? Or yeah, <laughs> this could be a whole episode on its oh, own. Yeah. yeah. So there is some research. There's some. Uh, evidence in the literature that soil uh, diversity, increased biodiversity in the soil has been correlated with decreased populations of aphids. And so think about that. Like there are so many unknown factors going on for that correlation to even exist, mm-hmm. right? Right. Well, that yeah, I, I, I would actually I kind of like that, you know, we should have probably been looking below the soil surface, but if you think about it from that perspective, for the most part, you know, we, we at at the point in time when we were studying the stars, a lot of our soil practices, I think you kind of hit it there, where 
a little bit more in terms of small farm practices. You know, my grandfather, he's out in the Flint Hills. We talked about some of his old practices where they used to uh, unground that they could plow up because part of that's, you know, Flint Hills. So you have a nice layer of bedrock underneath there that you can't plow. The fields that they could plow up, they used to put in red clover and white clover. They'd let that go for a year. And they would take that, whether it's the seed or the, the actual uh, value in the forage quality, and they'd plow that up and plant either one year of a major grain crop, which by that definition would be corn, or a couple of years of, of minor crops of sorghums and milo, or well, yeah, sorghum, milo, uh, those sorts of uh, summer annual crops. And you, t you know, we we had that conversation. He was talking about you know some of the shifts he's seen at that point of going from away from that type of a system towards what we have now, and it's just really interesting because we are you know starting to realize that we did understand maybe we understood things we didn't understand things quite as well as we should have at that point, but now maybe we understood things a little bit better even though we didn't have the data and the science to back all of that up. Right. And so I think maybe that's a bit of the shift that's happening right now is we're recognizing the actual value that is, you know, underneath our feet that beforehand we would have called the, you know, called dirt. And now we're recognizing it as soil. And Just to watch, to physically see soil change, which I have. I've seen the, the, the color change and the, and the structure change. And to me, that's just like, this is real, you know. It's, this isn't somebody trying to fluff fluff me up you know this is what I've been doing it's it's changing things and you get these big rain events I mean I'm 64 years old and I've seen 300 year floods think about that and think of the damage that does I just have seen so much soil move that if it was somehow armored or there's just things you can do to to better ourselves and uh and we're in a, this isn't going to end anytime soon, from what I understand. We're in like a 25-year cycle of this, you know. And uh, so I think, I, I don't know, I don't think we can keep farming as, as usual if we want to keep our soil in place. How do you think your soil, now that you've implemented some of these practices, is handling those extreme weather conditions or those intense rainfalls? I think it's night and day difference because I've I had a neighbor told me here about 10 years ago he says you want to if you want to check out what your farm's doing he says put a raincoat out raincoat on and go out when it's raining and watch the water because you can learn about a lot about the way the water's traveling across your field and what it's doing to your field my wife used to think I was nuts but now she's just like okay have fun whatever <laughs> But I'll take off if it's not lightning out, and I'll go out and trudge through some of those heavy rain events just to watch the water flow and to watch the color of the water. And I've got water leaving the, the land that I run now, and it looks like you could take a drinking glass and scoop some up, and, and it's clear, you know. It's not this brown water that you see going down the river. So... Um, I think it's huge, uh, the change that I've made to go away from the tillage and, and keeping the soil in place. It's, it's, it's night and day in my, in my mind when we have these big weather events. 
Well, that's interesting, you know, mentioning rainfall and maybe some, you know, again, for you two who have a little more experience with this than I do, uh, you know, with the recent drought, I'm wondering if maybe you saw something a little different with your soils, you know, in terms of drought, because oftentimes, you know, when I think of drought, I think of basic, basic dust bowl conditions. You start seeing the sediment blowing around in your soils. Did you notice that this year at all? No. Um, one thing I noticed this year, so the rain that we got, we were dry all summer, basically, but we always, we got our rain in the 11th hour. Yes. And it was just enough to get us to get us to the next event. But like I said, we're in, we're in pothole country here, and I've got the, the land that I run is pretty well drained with tile and terraces. Um, but what we noticed this year is what I noticed this year, the last six years we've been wet. So I've had drowned out spots every year. And there's nothing, to me, there's nothing more frustrating. Even with the cover crops, um, we've had four, six inch rains, you know, four inches, six inches, comes fast. And even with good drainage, there's just not ample time. A year ago, we had we had a six-inch rain. It was in June or July. The corn was pretty tall. You would have thought it would could take it, but it was warm. It was hot. You can't have hot water standing on corn. It just won't. It just it'll take it out. So what we noticed this last year and why we've got had such a good crop is because those we didn't have any potholes droughted out. None. And a lot of those areas haven't raised a crop in six years. So I mean, you got tons of nutrients there, obviously. And now, I mean, that's the best soil we've got on the farm. And now they didn't drown out about uh, at all. They, and, I, and I think this is gonna really be huge for us because even in those lair, low areas, it was dry. So for the first time in the last six, seven years, we've got roots down deep. And I can't help but think that that's gonna help those areas uh, those compacted areas, because even doing the cover crops, even the cover crops were drowning out in some of those areas with the wet springs we had. So I, I think this is maybe going to be a, a start us on a cycle uh, of keeping those, getting those areas to drain a little better. Well, I've only got one last question here for for you, and. Uh, with a lot of uh, with a lot of younger producers, a lot of other producers who are starting to look at cover cropping seriously, the drought up in Stearns County has helped push that along actually immensely. They've had phone calls at the soil and water office there, so they tell me that about cover cropping and and the interest has seemingly spiked in a lot of in a lot of these areas. In your experience, what would you what would your recommendation to people be to people who are starting to look at cover cropping, getting into it? What would your or what would your advice to them be? My advice, I think, would be the what I found is the easiest is to start is cereal rye. Plant soybeans into cereal rye because there's something magical about a soybean plant growing. Well, I don't know that it's magical. I think this, the cereal rye brings up 
the nitrogen. It's a good scavenger. It covers the ground. You're talking drought areas. It keeps that covered ground is going to be about 30 degrees cooler on a on a June hot day when before every the beans gets shaded in. It's it's very common to see 30 30 degrees difference between cover crop fields and and worked fields. So in irrigated country, I think that's huge. Um, but that cereal rye plant breaks down and gives back nitrogen in August, and, and that's where we're seeing a yield bump. Uh, a couple of years ago, we figured it was six bushel of the acre. Um, and because that decaying cereal rye is giving back that nitrogen just when that soybean plant needs a, a nitrogen kick. But so that, I think that would be a, a good place to start. And I guess my advice would be is, is to just try it. Try, especially on those, those farms where you're, where you're struggling uh, with lighter, lighter soil or with soil, like I was talking about earlier, with soil moving. Um, try to keep that soil in place because that's pretty precious. If, we're, if you can't keep, that's where all your nutrients are is in that topsoil. And if you've got that leaving the farm, especially with today's prices of fertilizer, I mean, um, that's going to be a real eye-opener, too, I think. Um, we're uh, try to grow our own uh, nutrients right here on the farm rather than putting on so many synthetics, you know. I think, I think we can look at making some changes in some rates if we have uh, some cover crops. So that'd be something to look at, too. But... Um, yeah, just, and go to meetings, go to, try to go to some good cover crop meetings to learn. Uh, I was lucky enough to go to listen to Gabe Brown and, and Ray Archuleta and, and some of those leaders um, in this field, and they've just, they've been, they gave me some excellent uh, information, and once you get going and start to see this, the changes with your own eye, and I think you've got to have your heart in it. And I—that's why I went to the cover crop meetings because I—I just felt like we needed to, to do better. And and you, your heart's got to be in it. I—I I don't know that you can do cover crops if your heart's not in it. You just got to say, hey, this is, if this is, really something I want to do to to help, help my farm out. Um, yeah, for what farmland is selling for nowadays, why in the world would you want to go down, downstream? You know, you'd want to do everything to keep your topsoil in place. Uh, well, do you have any other questions, Claire? No, just I would ask Tim if there's any other thoughts you'd like to leave us with today. Well, just one. I was just reading in the farm magazine. Now I wish I had that that in front of me, but they're in the process. It's a two-year project. They're cleaning the lower part of the Mississippi, and I think it's $274 million they're spending. Now, granted, some of that's bank erosion, some of that's urban. We can't point it all, and, and, and by no means am I pointing that at just farmers. But, but go back to what I was talking about with the thickness of a dime and think about that. If you've just got a thickness of a dime on an acre leaving, which is pretty easy to do, I. A lot of our topsoil is down there in the in the Gulf, and to spend that kind of money to dredge our our main transportation vein 
Uh, I mean, man, we got to think about this, you know? I think, I truly believe we can do better. So that's, I guess, what I would leave you with. Ends it the same way he started it. We can do better. Yes. All right, well, thank you for being with us here today. Thank you, Tim. Tim. Thank you. If you'd like to know more, go to z.umn.edu backslash local, and there you can find both Clara and my own contact information if you have any ideas for any other growers you'd like to have on this podcast or anything, any thoughts that you might have. And again, thanks for listening to this episode of the Field Guide Podcast. We hope you'll tune in next time.